Hi folks, welcome to the Wildwoods Nation podcast. In episode 22, we're talking with Professor Frederick Taylor, as this month marks the 79th anniversary of the infamous raid on Coventry in November 1940 by the Luftwaffe during the height of the Blitz. How and why was Coventry so important to the British war effort, and in particular the aircraft industry? Well, it was... Coventry had always been a, a, a place of skilled work and, and a lot of metal bashing went on, but so did things like making ribbons and making bicycles and then the car industry and all the rest of it. And so really what happened was that when war started to approach, firstly they built shadow factories on the outskirts of Coventry, as they did in other industrial cities too during 38, 30, and after it became clear that war, while not inevitable, was, 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 was altogether possible and maybe even probable, and that the only way we had to counter the Hitler threat was not really through negotiation. It was clear after Munich, uh, particularly after he marched into Prague in, in March 39, that really there was not that much point talking to this guy anymore. Uh, so the deterrents were important. I mean, the big shadow factory that was built uh, on the outskirts of Coventry was built on fields where the farmer had in the spring sown crops. Uh, and by the autumn, there was a shadow factory arising. There, shadow factories, as you probably know, were run basically under contract by private companies, were in fact essentially government factories and financed by the government. And they became a feature from 1936, 37 onwards. Um, so Coventry, along with various other places like, you know, Sheffield was a big uh, centre of the aero industry. But Coventry started to turn itself over from making cars and various other types of automotive machinery into things like aero engines. I mean, Morris, Armstrong, Sidley, all the big companies in in, 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 in Coventry started turning themselves out of this kind of thing. The Rudge factory, the motorcycle factory, was taken out by EMA, who were contracted, EMI, who were contracted to make radar equipment, for instance, uh, by 39-40. So it became one of these major towns. But what really attracted the Germans, yes, it was a good town to bomb from them, was it was the perfect size and the perfect location for them to really see how they could have a campaign against the aero industries and the various kind of war industries, particularly in the Midlands and the north of England. Uh, and also combine it, frankly, with a campaign of intimidation against the working population and against the small and medium-sized industrial cities that uh, they hadn't yet bombed. So Coventry was the big test case for them. What could they do? How much damage could they do, not just to the factories and the workers' housing, but to morale? So it became something of a test case, and that's why I suppose it's so important and so interesting for the historian. You touched on it there. How have the Blitz and the Luftwaffe's attempt to bring the country to its knees in 1940 been unfolding up to this point so far? Well, they tried to bomb all the all the fighter bases and consider themselves not to have succeeded sufficiently in that. That's why they suddenly started attacking London at the beginning of September. Uh, most historians agree that, in fact, they should have carried on attacking the fighter bases, but they, they tended to do that a bit, the Luftwaffe. They tended to hop around a bit. Uh, and when the 
London Blitz didn't bring England to its knees. I mean, at one point they were convinced that once you start bombing London and uh, all those British politicians who had their nice houses there would suddenly get the wind up and think about making peace. That sort of didn't seem to work either. So they decided they had to get out there and um, bomb the provincial infrastructure, particularly that for the kind of uh, armaments and aero industries. So it was a progression through the summer from beginning with bombing the RAF bases, which obviously was a fairly legitimate and kind of uh, logical thing to do at that point in the campaign, to them bombing London, which was gradually relatively indiscriminate, and then moving out into the provinces thinking, okay, well, let's see if we can destroy uh, as much as we can of the infrastructure and the aero industry, because it was also, by this point, it was apparent, even to the Germans, who overestimated their success in attacking uh, British factories and the British armaments industry, that no matter how many British aircraft they shot down, they appeared to be being replaced. So it occurred to them that we better actually try and stop the aircraft being produced in the first place, which is how places like Coventry came into consideration. Although it must be said that even before the war, the Germans had managed to obtain aerial photographs of cities, including some of Coventry. I mean, I've seen the, uh, the aerial photographs taken uh, when, 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 when Germany was not actually yet at war with Britain. So they thought about all that and they sussed out the whole thing. Uh, and so Coventry was, was the beginning of a, of a new phase where they uh, felt that uh, uh, along with bombing London, and stopped bombing London, but they no longer thought that that would be sufficient. So they thought they should move out into the provinces and, uh, and, and try and destroy both the industries and the human resistance uh, that those industries and those cities represented. And what defences did the Germans have to contend with? Were there many squadrons of 10 group tasked with defending the city in the industrial heartland of the Midlands? Frankly, not really. The week before, actually, Coventry was actually bombed. Everybody started to get very worried about it, and the local Chamber of Commerce and, and, and also the unions had actually called upon the government in Westminster to provide more anti-aircraft defences for uh, Coventry, which they had uh, on a fairly modest scale, but some. But really, the Britain in mid to autumn 1940 was not actually particularly well defended, particularly outside London, uh, as far as anti-aircraft and also anti-bomber fighter activity was concerned. For a start, of course, they didn't yet have a decent radar, onboard radar, in most uh, fighter planes that would enable them to actually find and shoot down German bombers that were operating by night, uh, which by this stage the Germans, having uh, experienced some losses earlier in the summer, were doing. Uh, and and that proved to be the case on the night the Coventry was bombed. The only German plane that we know was definitely shot down was probably shot down near Loughborough on its way home. Oh, no, actually, I think it was, no, sorry, I think it was on its way to the target. I don't think any was shot down, actually, over Coventry, although, yeah, there were some anti-aircraft placements in the middle of town that, that blasted away. There's one account where somebody came across a, a big naval gun that somebody stuck at the end of a street uh, by the pub and was blasting away. It's quite extraordinary how relatively amateurish uh, things could feel. So... No, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that Coventry was uh, well defended. No, 
and certainly it had the anti-aircraft anti uh, artillery, which which at least could put the Germans off their stroke a bit. It didn't actually manage to bring anybody down. Uh, but in terms of the night fighters, I mean, forget about it. Um, really, almost entirely ineffectual. They couldn't even see the Germans. They couldn't find them. Occasionally came across a German bomber by accident while flying around the skies. Uh, it wasn't the fault of the pilots. They were excellent pilots who later in the war, once they got some decent onboard radar, they could find the Germans. Then they started shooting them down. But at that point in the war, uh, early November uh, 1940, they just didn't have the technology um, to to deal with with a raid like Coventry. London was slightly better uh, defended, but even there, there wasn't an awful lot they could do. Given its vitally important role to the war effort and aircraft production, which we've already discussed, had much been done to prepare the city from attack from the air in terms of air raid shelters and supplies, so, AK, so effectively protecting the civilian population? It was kind of decent. It certainly wasn't wasn't great. There were there, there were there were air raid shelters in the city centre. They weren't big. Uh, there were air raids beneath places like the big department stores and and things like that. And people hid in there. I mean, one of the interesting differences between Germany and Britain is that most German houses were and still are built with a, a cellar, a basement. Uh, whereas a great many British houses, except for quite grand rural and semi-rural houses, don't tend to have cellars and basements. So there was no natural air raid shelter under the house. Uh, so you had your, uh, you know, your, 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 your Anderson shelters in the garden and that sort of thing, which were not much good against a direct hit, but, but, but would protect you from, you know, blast effects from something sort of, you know, 50, 100 yards away. So, yeah, it was kind of not terrible, but it was for a raid on the scale that Coventry actually ended up being on the receiving end of, it was uh, inadequate. There's no question about it. What would have been adequate? I mean, there was talk of building underground in the centre of town. They never, got, they never quite got round to it. It it, it it was difficult. What do you do? Tear, tear a city apart to build, you know, concrete bunkers? You need a, a, a totalitarian regime uh, to do that. And you don't need a, an old city centre. Lovely old buildings peppered with factories. This is the weird thing about Coventry. It had this, I mean, the Triumph factory producing airways is practically right next to the cathedral. People wonder why the cathedral was bombed. Well, whether or not it was deliberate, uh, certainly... You know, you just had to turn left when you went out of the front of the cathedral and, and a, you know, a couple of hundred yards along, you encountered the Triumph factory. It was a big factory, too. Uh, so, as, as was proved almost everywhere, except in the big, big cities in Germany where they'd undertaken a, a big shelter uh, construction program from the mid-30s onwards, uh, Dresden was not included, of course, which was one of its problems and why it was so vulnerable. And commentary was very similar. If somebody really chose to seriously bomb your city, there were very few places you could go where you were safe. That's one of the terrible things about bombing as a feature of 20th century warfare. I'm guessing the factories would have been obliged to build shelters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did. They did. They, they, they had shelters. They, they, they were more or less good, again, if you had a really big direct hit with, 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 with say, one of those big 
you know, £4,000 <laughs> parachute bombs or whatever. I mean, there wasn't a lot you could do. Uh, and some of them were turned out to be death traps in some of the factories. But there were some good shelters beneath the factories. Yeah, they probably had, in many ways, the best shelters. And, of course, the night shift would get down there uh, when the sirens went. But, um, again, I mean, they could, they could also be, be death traps, um, as is always the case with bomb shelters. There's always, they, they, may, they will probably protect you, but there are certain circumstances in which they can actually be the death of you. Did the fire services and AFS have sufficient supplementary water sources to call upon? No, they didn't. They uh, they had a decent amount of water, and there was the river, and there was the canal. The trouble was at one point in the night after the Germans started bombing, and it went on, as you know, from evening of the 14th in, into the small hours of the 15th, I mean, eight hours and nine hours, they dropped a bomb which hit the canal and exploded in such a way that it caused a lot of the water to leak out, uh, which meant that what the fire brigades had planned to use as an auxiliary water supply was not actually uh, available from that time onwards. Uh, so that's why, of course, they, they ran out of water when they were trying to fight the fire in the cathedral, which had the water supply not given out. Um, they could quite possibly have managed to save. But uh, the fire brigades, many of which had come in from the surrounding areas, were in the end just unable to get the water to train the hoses on the cathedral to save it. And they just had to pretty much get as much of the valuables and precious and sacred stuff out of the cathedral as possible and uh, and watch it burn after that. Uh, there wasn't really much they could do. So, yeah, I mean, this was early in the war. Everybody was learning. Londoners, by this point, had a couple of months' experience of being bombed, but almost nobody else had. I mean, there'd been this sub, you know, the submarine factory in Southampton had been bombed by the Germans pretty badly and, and a few other things and bits and pieces. But uh, this was the first big attack on a middle-sized industrial city that we'd experienced. It was learning time and a lot of things, it became clear, didn't work, of course. A great many lessons were learned. Well, can you take us through the events leading up to the raid on Commentary November and in particular the Battle of the Beams, this kind of secret cat and mouse race ah. against time that was being waged in the shadows? Well, the Germans had developed their so-called X-Gerät, their beam system, which with onboard equipment uh, on the bombers could actually guide the German bombers to the target. I mean, basically, they set up two beams and they in, where they intersected was the target. It was very clever. It's interesting, the British, of course, given our situation uh, on an island under threat, we concentrated our radar research on building a chain of radar stations to detect bombers coming our way rather than to uh, aid kind of aggressive bombing uh, over a long distance on the continent. Uh, but the Germans put their effort at this point in the war into developing these um, uh, systems. The systems were, in the early stages, quite easy to jam once you found out where they were. But by the time the raid on Coventry came, the 
Germans had developed this thing further uh, in such a way that at that point in early November, uh, R.V. Jones and his other boffins hadn't managed to, to crack it, to, to actually find a way of, of jamming it properly. A German bomber bearing one of these onboard radar equipment uh, centers, so to speak, crashed off the Dorset coast just a few days before the Coventry raid. But firstly, there was a turf war between the Army and the Navy about who took charge of the bomber, which had crashed on the beach, half in and half out of the water. Uh, wonderful. Dad's Army type piece of rather tragic farce in its way. <laughs> Uh, and so they hadn't actually had a chance to examine this equipment by the time Coventry was bombed. So there were all kinds of things that happened. I mean, the, but the Germans could guide themselves now accurately, and it was a big problem for bombers at this stage in the war. You could miss, you 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 could miss cities altogether uh, if you were not careful. If you didn't have any other method of doing that, it has to be said it was notoriously a moonlit, bright moonlit night. Hence, Moonlight Sonata, because the Germans knew it would be a full moon, and Moonlight Sonata was the name of the mission. So they may not even have needed those guidance systems on the night they bombed Coventry. It didn't, in other words, make any difference to their finding the city and identifying the target, because uh, they could they could they could make it out practically with the naked eye. So this system developed, and it was very clever and interesting, and got the Germans. I personally don't doubt very much whether it made such a huge difference. I mean, later on in the war, it's a long story, but basically the British in the end managed through various devious means to persuade the Germans that their guidance system didn't work, although it did. And so the Germans pretty much gave up on this guidance system from 1941 onwards. But all through the autumn and winter of, of, of 1940-41, they were using this guidance system in various guises, trying to stay one ahead of the, the British uh, scientists who were cracking it and jamming it. But I personally I doubt whether it makes a lot of difference, whether you, and we'll get on to the whole system of whether uh, we knew the Germans were going to bomb Coventry and when, and Churchill's role in all that and so on. But I personally don't think it makes a hell of a lot of difference uh, I think we sort of managed to crack the beam system by the following week when Birmingham was bombed rather badly um, and 500-odd people killed. And certainly in the big raid on London uh, on the 28th of December, just after Christmas, when a lot of the city of London was set on fire, I think the British knew the Germans going to bomb London. But, you know, there's a limit to what you can do about it unless you have a really, really effective fighter defence. So it's kind of a fascinating subject, the Battle of the Beams. I mean, it's a great one for techno freaks. And there are lots of fabulous, interesting stories to do with it. And it's a tale of great ingenuity on both the German and the British side that has a fascination of its own. But um, I will get on to whether people knew, whether we knew Coventry was going to be a target and decide whether it would have made any difference if we had. And and that's a moot point as far as I'm concerned. How did the British actually eventually counter this headache with aspirin, as it were, in terms of overcoming the Battle of the Beam? Well, they, they just found, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a technical expert, but they found various ways of jamming it. Uh, and I say in the end, because they had... It turned out that the frequency of the beam that the Germans were using later in the winter when they did develop a counter-counter antidote to the aspirin, <laughs> which is, you know, the thing that uh, 
that the, the British code named um, their anti-beam anti effort was the Alexandra Palace, which had before the war had been the television centre. British television had developed and been in, I think, about 20,000 homes altogether immediately before the war was rapidly expanding, going to go to Birmingham along a cable in 1940 and so on. And the Ali Pali was set up as, as like the television production centre with some very powerful transmitters there. And they found out that the, the German frequencies were actually the same as the Ali Pali's. So they fired up the... Uh, stuff at the equipment of the Ali Pali again and started gently blocking it, not making it obvious. In other words, if you knocked out the German frequencies altogether and just jammed them, uh, they would realise what was going on. So what the British did, which was very clever, was to gently disturb the German beam uh, operation to an extent that it just looked unreliable and, and not worth it, rather than Making it up. I don't think the Germans ever really realised uh, what was going on, but basically they were being gently persuaded by the British through a campaign of deceptively quiet uh, disruption that their system didn't actually work. And that is why, in the end, uh, the Germans uh, gave up the beam system, which was very useful. I'm not saying it was completely useless, although perhaps wouldn't have made the crucial difference uh, that some people thought it, it might have. Um, but that's why they gave it up. And so we didn't have to counter with that later in the war. Not, I mean, from May 41, of course, when the German Air Force switched its attentions to the attack on the Soviet Union, there was, there was, there was obviously much less bombing going on. You've already touched on it just a minute ago. But one thing we're going to have to focus in on and discuss is ultra and that sacrifice theory. What's your take on this conspiracy theory and Churchill's role within it? <laughs> I think, as I say in the book, I, I think there are, there are two things to be considered here. Uh, one, what did Churchill know, and if so, what did he know? I would briefly say I think he was, in fact, because he used to spend, when there was a big raid uh, forecast, he used to tend to disappear off to Ditchling in Oxfordshire to stay overnight there. Uh, and that it seems to have been what he was preparing to do in fact, his sort of convoy was heading out of London on the late afternoon, early evening. He'd been to the funeral of Neville Chamberlain, who had died uh, the previous week and was being buried in, I think, Westminster Abbey. And then they headed out in, towards Oxfordshire. And then, as is known, you know, well known, Churchill's car then turned around and went back to London. And so that is why people think he suddenly knew that whatever was being planned and they knew there was a big raid being planned because of Ultra. It wasn't against London. That seems to me quite quite likely. However, the conspiracy comes from thinking, well, Churchill sacrificed um, Coventry because he didn't want the Germans to realise that we could read their signals, which is what the Ultra secret involved, of course, reading their mail, as the saying went. The thing about that is that it may well be true. Uh, I think there's evidence that by the late afternoon of 14th of November, it had been realised, in certain circles at least, that it was likely to be the Midlands and nothing ever specifically says Coventry, but it wasn't going to be London. It wasn't going to be another couple of targets that 
had been potentially been picked up through ultra interceptions over the last few days, and that by late afternoon, the powers that be did in fact realise that the target was going to be Coventry. They'd put all the pieces of evidence together and realised that. So there you are. We probably did know, but what do you do with that information when you have it? Do you evacuate the entire city? It's early evening, it's twilight, it's November, children coming home from school, shifts changing at factories. You have to start getting equipment in place to defend the city. Do you evacuate the population? I mean, that is the implication when you say Coventry could have been saved. What do you mean? We know you didn't have the night fighters to properly defend the city. Uh, We know that the amount of... um, aircraft, anti-aircraft artillery there was limited. And do you want thousands and thousands of people swarming out of the city in the early evening when it's getting dark, it's November, with emergency services, fire uh, services, and all the other things you have happening when you're anticipating a large air raid coming into the city? It would have been complete chaos. So, it's, it's a great story. I mean, I've seen various fictions around it, and they're very gripping and so on. But it seems to me it just doesn't compute with the way countries and governments and systems behave under these circumstances. And after all, London had been having hell bombed out of it for the past nearly two and a half months. <coughs> question was, because a provincial city was going to be bombed, did you take these extraordinary special measures? I mean, I don't think so. Basically, I think you have to decide at this point, okay, we'll do our best to defend the city and we'll hope for the best. Uh, Maybe the Germans won't do too much damage. They might want to, and they may have a decent-sized force heading that way. But, you know, this is not the first city to be bombed and it won't be the last and so we'll just do what we can, and uh, Coventry will have to take it. I think that would have been the attitude had that situation arisen. And in a way, it's very hard to gainsay it, because after all, there's a war on. You know, um, as I say, Birmingham was bombed the next week, 500 people killed. It's a much bigger city, of course. You know, so Coventry has, because of its mix of, of, of industrial and historic architecture and its mixed population and the at that stage in the more spectacular destructive effects of the German bombing uh, Coventry has acquired this kind of mythic quality uh, historically when people think about it but I think it was just it would have been a simple calculation what can we do there's a limit to what we can do we'll get everybody in the shelters and hope for the best I mean you know and try and try and shoot down some German bombers and see what the, if the fighters can, despite everything, get out there and cause some damage. It's, it seems to me, strip away the mythology of Coventry and you've got um, a fairly ordinary problem of air defence. I suppose the memorandum by Wing Commander Win- Winterbottom, you know, head of MI6 air section, um, hmm. the fact that there was that missing bit of ultra message, does that sort of add... Add to the fire, is it? This this kind of conspiracy theory. Yes, but but the ultra the ultra information. If you look at the stuff that, that's that's in the national archives, there were a lot of gaps. These were early days. You know, there were quite a lot of people already working at Bletchley Park, but the information was patchy. The technology was new. Uh, later in the war, there were thousands and thousands of people working on this stuff, and and, and incredibly 
complex and efficient uh, system going on. But yeah, it's obvious there were there were whole times at which nothing was coming in. Uh, not that nothing was happening in terms of German signals, but they just were not coming in. So yeah, I mean, again, there are gaps, and uh, not just around the time of the Coventry raid. And again, uh, when you get mythological and fascinating and catastrophic and tragic raids like the one on Coventry, it invites uh, conspiracy, just as the raid on Dresden did almost five years later. Were there any missed opportunities to possibly prevent what happened on Coventry? You mentioned in your book the downed Heinkel on, uh, I think it was West Beach? Yeah, 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 that was the one. Yeah, that was the one where they, they could have picked, picked the equipment off it. Um, but again, yes, they probably could have, if they'd done that a bit more efficiently and not made such a mess of it, they might have managed to crack the, the, new, the new version of the, of, the, of the German beam guidance technology. But you still have the problem. You then would know they're going to attack Coventry. What do you do? I mean, personally, I don't, I don't, I don't buy the whole thing quite with the, um, the, the British would have been terrified that the Germans would find out about, about Ultra uh, if it was clear that we knew what they were doing. It's sort of, if it had been a consistent pattern, I suppose, but one of the interesting things, actually, to sideline, is that, uh, and because I'm also a German specialist that I sort of know a bit about, is, is that the Germans almost never thought that their codes had been cracked. They really didn't. When the enemy appeared to know something, they assumed it was treachery, spies, traitors, foreign workers working in armaments factories in Germany, of which there were millions, you know, even, even early in the war, there were many, many, because they had enormous labor shortage so people coming in from the occupied countries and the satellite countries like croatia and slovakia and and so on all these foreign workers were working in um in, in german factories and even some german bases i mean polish workers at pinamunda for instance got out information about the v1 rockets uh later in the war so just to an extent what the german authorities uh, uh suspected uh, turned out to be justified but, but they almost never thought uh, that their codes were in grip. They really thought that their codes were secure. So you can know as much as you want. I, I, I have a feeling that Ultra was particularly useful in the field, particularly f for the Army and the Navy, knowing where, where, where the enemies had placed his troops or his ships or his submarines or whatever it was. I don't think in terms of, 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 of predicting bombing raids, uh, it, it would have made a crucial difference to the outcome because as I said, you always have this problem. What do you do? Do you evacuate an entire city because it's going to be bombed? That never happened at any point during the war on any side, on the German side or, or, or the British side. So it's fascinating, but it, but it wouldn't have saved Coventry because there was a limit to what you could do to stop bombing, at that, particularly at that stage in the war, before the extremely uh, sophisticated air defence was, was much more sophisticated later in the war uh, and more effective. It still didn't solve the problem of bombing, which was still catastrophic uh, for both the fabric of cities and the civilians living in them. But, you know, there it was. Um, I, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but I think it sort of is beside the point. 
thanks for listening. We do hope you found this episode of interest. Stay tuned as the next few parts of our discussion with Professor Taylor about the Moonlight Sonata Raid will be out very shortly on the Wellwood Nation podcast.